Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I've said this before, and I tried to go different, but the Lord brought me right back. Expect the unexpected. That's something that the Lord keeps saying to me, and it's become one of my sayings. So, Dad had sayings, my dad, I have sayings. One is expect the unexpected, and another one that's me is it's got to be God. If you're going to get me to move, it's got to be God. No lesser motivation will work. But I wish I realized younger in life that God works unexpectedly. I feel like I would have been so much better at raising my children. I don't think I would have stressed so much over bills or bad behavior or setbacks. But too many times I had my focus set in one direction when God was coming in another way. I don't know if I told you this story, but I was living in Vista, and I heard these noises outside, and our car had broken down up in Orange County. So I had made a whole bunch of tamales, and I sent Brian up to deliver them to my parents. And while he was delivering the tamales, the car broke down. And so the car breaks down, and he calls me, and he says, look, I'm finding a tow truck. I don't know how I'm going to get back or if I can get back. And I'm like, you know, okay. So I'm like, don't be scared. Don't be scared. It's one of those really bad windy nights, you know, where things start creaking. I hear something in the backyard. So I call my neighbor, Doug, and I said, Doug, could you come up? Could you check on my backyard? Did I tell you this story? So anyway, I'm saying to myself, do not be scared when he rings the front door. Like, do not be scared when the doorbell rings. Ever do that? Like, he is coming. Don't be scared if he knocks or rings the doorbell. You know him. He's your neighbor. It's going to be all right. You know, I've got my two precious bundles upstairs asleep, and I'm, you know, being, you know, Hector protector downstairs, and I'm all of, like, 28 years old, and I'm going to protect the house. And um, so anyway, I'm waiting, like, just waiting for the, for the, the door I'm just waiting, and all of a sudden, I hear a rap at my kitchen window, and I turn around, because that's where the noise is, and there's my neighbor, but I didn't recognize him, and he decided to take the flashlight and illuminate his face <laughs> in this big old kitchen window, and I just went, Aah! and I could not stop, and he's like going, like, don't do that, he's still shining the thing, like, it's me, Doug, and I'm like, I know, but I can't stop. You know, I, my mom had that too. Once she starts screaming, you got to just let her carry it all the way out. And that was like, I got about two more minutes and I'll be fine. You know, <laughs> because my expectation was he would come to the front door, walk through the house to the back door, check it out, and then say, everything's all right. I didn't expect him to take the gate. The gate is the burglar way, you know? and walk around and check the backyard and then knock on my kitchen window going, with a flashlight. I mean, seriously. I almost had a heart attack. But this is what I mean when I say we get our focus so set in one direction when God is coming from a different one. Rather than expect the expected, we need to recognize again and again that our God does the unexpected, the unconventional. 
in the people he works with, in the ways that he works. We are women and we love recipes. We do recipe exchanges. And we want recipes that always turn out the same, don't we? We like those recipes like the never fail recipes. You know, this one never fails. I have a never fail pie crust and it lives up to its name. It just never fails. And we love those kind of recipes. And we often expect God to have a set of recipes for how he does everything. And he does not. And if the Bible shows us anything, it shows us that God works with unexpected people in unexpected ways. Once more, I want to remind you of the Jesus People Movement, a time when God moved through a preacher and his Pentecostal wife to reach a whole generation of young people. And if ever there was a couple that was considered square, it had to be my parents. You know, dad was, Doug, dad, my dad struggled with his weight all his life. He was on a diet every other week. Always struggled. He had a chipped tooth. He always wore a t-shirt under every shirt he ever wore, there was a white t-shirt cleaned by my mom. And he was always stripping off his shirt so he wouldn't get it dirty. And he was always getting grease stains on those white t-shirts. And my mom knew how to get rid of every type of grease stain in the world. She had remedies for anything that my dad got on those white t-shirts. And she would wash them and be pristinely white. He always wore dockers. He never wore blue jeans my whole life. What did the hippies wear? blue jeans. He was just so, you know, and he's, he, 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 you know, people go, what did your dad look like with hair? I'm like, by the time I met him, he didn't have any. <laughs> he was 33 by the time I met him, 32, almost 33. He wasn't the type of person that you would ever expect to disciple hippies. And my mom, with her, um, with her love of the Holy Spirit, with their enthusiasm of the Holy Spirit. Oh, they were a dynamic duo. But you would never expect that it would come through this couple or a, or a Pentecostal, mildly, church. But when God brought guitars and drums into his church, nobody expected that. That God would work through guitars and drums, that he would bring the young, the old, drug addicts, homosexuals, criminals of all sorts. I promise you, I talked to them. A varied, all sorts, a varied amount of sins and sinners began to come and meet Jesus and be so transformed that they would get up and give their testimonies before everybody. And there was not one word of condemnation. You know what everyone did? Glory to God. Glory to God. Because we knew that each person saved was a miracle of God. There is a song or a poem called God Moves in Mysterious Ways by William Cowper. And I want to read it to you. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God works in mysterious ways. In our text today, we note the unexpected ways that God works in blessing, in restoration, and in people. God works unexpectedly to bless. The Shunammite woman wants to bless a prophet. 2 Kings 4, 8 through 10. How does she bless the prophet in one of the best ways possible to bless a man? Feed him. (laughs) Give him food. First question in the morning, Brian will turn to me, look at me and say, what's for dinner? I'm like, let me get out of bed. Let me put my robe on and slippers and I will tell you. Like, Food is seriously men's love language. It really, well, and they've got another one too. We won't talk about that, but I'm telling you, food is like number one love language. You feed a man. In fact, I knew this woman and she was like, she was older and she's like, I think my neighbor likes me. And I'm like, you know, do I look like Derek? I don't know. And so she's telling me and she said, well, you know, um, I I just, you know, I make them muffins and, you know, I invite them over for dinner. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you got that one. (laughs) Sure enough, he asked her to marry him about two months later. Food is a huge love language. She realizes as Elisha is traveling back and forth through Israel that he needs food. He needs a place where he can stop and just eat. So she invites him to dinner. Every time you're passing through, just stop in here and eat. When we lived in England, uh, we had all these dynamic single men working in our church. And they just volunteered. And so once a week, sometimes twice, I said, you know, just come over and I will feed you. And they came over, and it was amazing because they were so thankful they would do my dishes. I loved it. I was like, oh, maybe come over twice a week now. (laughs) And one of those young men had not yet met my daughter, Kristen, but he became my son-in-law, Michael. And he was once, he, it pays to feed a godly young man. Never know. But Elisha knows that whenever he is traveling through Israel and through that town, the the Shunammite town, he's got a hot meal waiting for him. But she notices his need. He needs more than a meal. It would be so great if he had a place just to rest. 
And so she builds a special room. She talks to her husband, can we build a special shelter for the prophet? This is thought out. It might be small, but it's an upper room. It's away from everything that's going on in the household. So he has privacy. It's on the wall, so it's got a window and he can look out. They also furnish it with furnishings to accommodate the prophet. Uh, you know, and furnishings were expensive in those days and hard to come by. But he makes sure that the prophet has a table and a chair so he can write, so he can study. He has a lamp so he can see, a bed so he can sleep. These furnishings are thought out. They're thought out for the purpose of blessing. I have two rooms in my house. I call them my prophet's chambers. And I have a desk in each of them. I have a chair for that desk. I have a little lounging chair. Thank God for, you know, Wayfair and Amazon. And uh, what's the other one I've used? Well, anyway, thank God for these things. And it's got a bed with... um, blankets. It's not only for when my daughter Kristen comes into town with her kids, but it's, it's for um, pastors that are visiting. And I call them my prophet's chambers. And I thought them out too. What do they need? A mirror. I got a mirror, uh, a full-length mirror, because our prophets, you know, check how they look these days. <laughs> Sometimes they're female. But I, I've tried to think of what would bless a prophet. And I took many of my cues from the Shunammite woman. Now, it's interesting that she chooses to bless and wants to bless. And we do not read of any other household in Israel providing housing or even a meal to the prophet. But I want you to recognize she wants to bless. She wants to bless. That's her intention. How can I bless this prophet? Elisha now wants to bless the Shunammite woman. 2 Kings 4, 11 through 17, what would bless her? He's thinking it out. He asks his servant, what would bless her? He calls her in, what would bless you? Do you want me to go to the king? Do you want me to um, talk to the captain of the army? What, how can I bless you? Well, Gehazi brings up that she doesn't have a child. Obviously, this is a sensitive subject because when Elisha tells her that God will give her the blessing of a son, she is incredulous. Like, no, I dwell among my own people. I'm content. Like, you know, don't get my hopes up. But the blessing does come in a year, and it's in the form of a son. The unexpected blessing of unexpected ways. A famine is coming to the land, and probably our earlier Bible studies about what happened in Gilgal with um, the man bringing the bread or the poison in the pot of stew, they probably happened during this famine time. But as we've mentioned before, the Bible is more interested in putting themes together. So our theme in this chapter, chapter 4, is Elisha's interaction with women from uh, the widow with just a little bit of oil and now to the Shunammite woman. So in chapter 8, which is probably, you know, more likely a time that happened 
uh, more at the time of chapter three or two, there's this famine. And Elisha warns her. Now, it's interesting that Elisha stays, but he warns her, you need to find a place to stay for the next seven years. She is not exempted from the effects of the famine unless she travels and stays in a place like Gaza that does not have a famine. He does not provide divine provision, but rather divine instruction to safeguard the Shunammite woman and her son during these lean times. So we see these unexpected blessings in unexpected ways, from a home-cooked meal to a chamber to rest, read, relax, and write, to a child, to a warning. Next, we move on to God works unexpectedly to restore. There is a promise in the Bible that has come to be one of my favorite promises, and it's in Joel 2, 25 through 26. And you probably know it, you've heard it, where God says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. Whatever type of locust you have known, God is promising restoration. And this is what he says, My great army which I sent among you, the locust, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. God says, I'll restore what the locust has destroyed. That's one of the things with locusts. I mean, they come in and they absolutely destroy everything when they swarm. God is in the business of restoration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. David wrote, and you know this, in Psalm 23.2 He restores my soul. Now, when I lived in England, uh, one of the houses we lived in had been built in 1846. And the owner's grandmother had lived in that house. And he said about restoring it to all the glory that it had in 1846. So he wouldn't just, you know, retile something. He had to get a tile that was reminiscent of the time when um, had to match the tile that was already there, right? He had... he wouldn't get rid of a doorknob. Instead, he meticulously removed every doorknob in the house, these 1846 doorknobs, and cleaned them, polished them, and fixed them so that they were the original doorknobs on every door. Do you know how responsible you feel for doorknobs all of a sudden? Like, I'm responsible for doorknobs from 1846. But he had done this incredible job, stripped up the carpets, restored the wooden floors. He wanted it to have the same glory and beauty, but knew, thank God, there was a kitchen, a refrigerator, even a garbage disposal, which is an anomaly for England. But it, it had that same beauty. He didn't throw things out. He restored them. He 
fixed them. He improved them. When we talk about God restoring, we're talking about fixing. We're talking about bringing back the original intent and glory and beauty. We're, we're talking about we're talking about bringing refreshment and newness to it. This is what he does when he restores. He gives back. You know, I have this friend, and she's listening right now, so you know who you are, Hurik. But she loves to go to, like, garage sales, and she buys... Sorry, Hudik. Some of the ugliest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and she takes them into her possession. And she begins to restore them and make them so beautiful so that her house in some way resembles a museum because she's got all these pieces that she just puts together so beautifully. And she says, you like that? You want to know how much I paid for it? I mean, it's like there's testimony pieces all over our house. You know, I go to a garage sale, and I'm with my dad. One man's junk is one man's junk. <laughs> and I just can't see it. But she sees in these pieces the glory that once was, and she restores them to that glory. And that's what we see with God. He restores. This young Shunammite boy dies as he's working in the field with his father. He has this headache and the pain, the pain. Um, he's old enough to talk. He's old enough to communicate. If you're wondering about his age, I have no idea, but he's old enough to talk, old enough to communicate, but young enough to be carried. Maybe it's an aneurysm. Maybe it's sunstroke. I had sunstroke when I was 12, and I thought I was going to die. But the, by the time he reaches his mother, he has died. The woman puts the child on Elisha's bed in the chamber that she has built for Elisha. She saddles one of the donkeys, refuses to be hindered, and makes her way straight to the prophet Elisha. Unexpectedly, Elisha does not know what is wrong with the woman. He sees her coming and he's like, what is this? Now we'll see as we continue with the life of Elisha. God tells Elisha everything. Elisha's got just this um, incredible connection with God where God is constantly speaking to him. But this time God has withheld from Elisha the understanding what is going on. This is a novel experience for the prophet. Yet when she comes and she gets off the donkey and she falls at his feet and she grabs his ankles, he listens to her distress as she pours out her pain and the issue and problem that her son has died. Elisha then sends his servant with his rod to lay it on the boy. Perhaps this was a method that had worked for Elisha before. We, we don't read about it, but not everything that Elisha did is written. As we are learning through the Gospel of John, these stories are curated. They're specially picked 
so that we might know how God moved through him. They've just kind of taken the most important. But perhaps this staff has worked before. Just like Elijah's mantle parted the Jordan River. Perhaps this rod has been used before. It was Moses' rod that he held out over the Red Sea, and it parted. Perhaps that's why he says, Gehazi, just take this rod. It's worked before. Gehazi lays it on the child. It doesn't work. The woman says to Elisha, I'm not waiting for Gehazi to come back. I'm not returning until you go with me. I'm not leaving your side. They go back. And Elisha goes up to this chamber. He closes the door. Talk about an unexpected way. As the prophet prays, he lays on the boy. He places his face on the boy's face, hands on the boy's hands, mouth on the boy's mouth, eyes on the boy's eyes. And he just remains that way, no doubt praying, until he begins to feel the flesh warm. Now, you would think if you feel the flesh warm, you would stay in the room, right? Okay, something's happening here. Does he? No. He goes down the stairs. He walks about the house. He's walking about the house, probably still praying. He goes up to the stair, up the stairs to his chamber. He does the same thing again, and all of a sudden, the boy opens his eyes. Don't you think that would like? What are you doing on top of me? You know, <laughs> hello. <laughs> then sneezes seven times. Elisha then calls to the woman and says, "Come, get your son." And she carries him down the stairs alive. Is that the most unexpected way that you've ever seen a healing take place? I've been at healing services, and I've, and I've seen people healed. I remember my dad praying for a man in a wheelchair at the front of the church on Greenville and Sunflower, and that man got up and walked. And then he started dancing. And then he started just doing this. I've been, I've been, I mean, my dad was even surprised, like, wow. <laughs> you know? But I've been in places where people have been saved. I've never seen that method. I know there's one guy that, you know, does a white jacket around and people get healed. Never, you know, that's an that's a innovation. But I have never, ever seen this method. But our God works unexpectedly, even to... Restore. If there's a doctor in a hospital, I think he'd be sued if he tried that way. <laughs> we see next that God restores the Shunammite woman's possessions in 2 Kings 8, 1 through 6. The Shunammite woman returns to the land after seven years in Philistine territory. Of note, the Philistines having been subdued by David, are no longer enemies of Israel, but neighbors. She goes to the king with her son, who is very much alive, to petition for the return of her land and property. And the fact that she goes to the king herself, a woman, shows that probably by this time she's a widow, because that was the man's obligation to go to the king. Widows had very little rights. No doubt this is why she brings her son, because he is the heir of all the lands. And she's probably doing this to make sure that his livelihood is also secured. But at that very moment, when she goes into petition, 
the king is talking to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, and he is asking specifically, tell me about the miracles that you've seen through Elisha's hand. And Gehazi has just gotten to the story about the young boy and about his restoration to life when in walks the very boy who was raised from the dead. The very boy and the woman. And Gehazi can say, these are the very one. Well, the king feels like he's just met a movie star, right? Like, whoa. Years ago, I was in the dentist's office and I read this Guidepost magazine. And it was telling the story about this um, man named Tim, and I believe his name was Newhouse. And uh, Newman, Newhouse, something new. Anyway, he was... Um, he worked at this market in Hawaii, but on the side he did stained glass. And his stained glass was so beautiful that he was asked, along with another man, the only two men, to learn from the, the stained glass master, like the most famous stained glass master at the time in Germany. So he was flown out to Germany. He sat under this man and he learned how to make these stained glass windows. And he even um, designed the stained glass windows for a famous building in Hawaii. This is when I don't have my notes. You're just going to get a famous building. <laughs> I, the Shunammite doesn't have a woman. I can't remember the name of this building. But anyway, I read this story. And he becomes a, he hurts his back at work. He becomes a cocaine addict. He's working at the... Uh, it's the international marketplace. He sells his little stained glass windows on the side. And he can't get over um, because of his back pain. And he's you know, self-medicating with the cocaine. And he meets this girl named Kathy. And she makes Hawaiian quilts. And she also has a booth. And they go out and they talk. And it's really like this great time. So he says, you know, do you want to go on a date? And she said, I don't date drug addicts. And he's like, I'm not a drug addict. You know, I'm just doing it for my back pain. She smiles at him. So he's like, that's it. I'm going to prove to her that I'm not a drug addict. So he goes home and he tries to go off the cocaine. And he's, he realizes he's addicted. And he cries out to God, God, help me. And he looks at his shelves and there's a Bible. And he said he knew he didn't own a Bible. And he doesn't know who put it in that shelf. But he grabs the Bible and he begins to read it. And he's reading and reading. And he said every time he got a craving for cocaine, he just would grab the Bible and read. It, and he would read until the craving um, lifted. And he, through this, he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, just reading the Bible and the Gospels. So she comes up to his booth and she said, what happened to you? There's something different. He said, well, obviously I'm not doing cocaine, but it's the Bible. I've realized Jesus really did die on a cross for my sins. And, you know, and she said, I want what you have. And he's like, okay, go on a date with me and I'll tell you all about it. So they start dating. They, they decide as they're dating that they need to go to church. They start going to the Calvary Chapel there. They both get saved. And, um, you know, the rest, so they, you know, then he starts going in the stained glass business, you know, does the windows and in that famous building that none of us... Remember, it's the name. So Brian says, we're going to a, a conference in Hawaii, a, a radio conference. And Brian was on the radio then, and so was my dad. We lived in Vista. 
And my cat's paying our way, so that's how we're going. So we're going, and Brian says, oh, they asked me to speak at this church. And I think it was Kailua. And I'm like, don't do it. He's like, I already said yes. I'm like, no, I want to meet Tim Newman. I've read all about him and his wife, Kathy. I want to meet him. And he goes to Calvary Chapel, you know, Pearl City. And Brian's like, that's where your dad's speaking. I'm sorry, Cheryl. And I'm like, no, no. So Brian at the conference, he walks up and he says, Cheryl, this is Tim Newman. And I look at Brian and he's like, I don't think it's the one. I'm like, yeah, it is. And I'm like, were you a cocaine addict? He's like, yes. I said, do you make stained glass windows? Yeah. And I said, does your wife Kathy still make quilts? He's like, how do you know me? And I'm like, I read your story in Guidepost. He said, that story's 15 years old. I've been a Calvary pastor in Kailua for like years now. And I'm like, oh, well, we're coming to your church. <laughs> but I felt like I was like a movie star. Like, oh, I'll never forget when I was back in New York. I've read so many of Tim Keller's books. And you never knew if Tim Keller was going to be speaking at his church or not. You know, I don't care if you're some movie star in Hollywood. Those aren't mine. Tim Keller, right? So my daughter and I were there together in church. And Tim Keller walks out. And we're both sneaking pictures. Like, you know, we're not going. We're like. You know, and then like, me and Tim. You know, like those are our stars. I know this because people felt that way about my dad. I one time said, dad, let me pose with you. We're in Israel and I've got Kelsey and I'm like, oh. And so this person took a picture of us. Next thing I knew, I got up and people were handing me their cameras and they're sitting down in the spot I was with my dad and Kelsey, my daughter, getting their pictures taken with Chuck, right? You know, so I get it. I get it. And I think that, for this king, all of a sudden, here come these people who have felt the touch of God. Doesn't that what? Like, they know God. They've had the living God work in their life. And so this king, who is ungodly, rules in the Shunammite woman's favor, not only that her land be restored, but that those who have occupied her land give her all the money that they have made from the produce of that land for the last seven years. Now that is restoration, land and money. What a way to restore. God's timing is so perfect. Had she come a day earlier or a day later, an hour earlier or an, you know, an hour later, she never would have identified herself as one through whom the Lord worked. Finally, we come to the unexpected people God uses. You've already heard about them. But he used a woman, married, barren, but with a heart to bless. He used her in blessing a prophet. He used a servant, someone who works full time, but recognizes the need of another and privately lets the need be known so that the man of God might pray and work to bless. He's a servant who follows the prophet's instructions and who is willing to testify to a king about what he has seen and witnessed God do. Just a servant? No. A servant 
used by God. He uses an ungodly king who is moved by the story of a woman and sees the living witness to the work of God so that he restores all that's been taken. He uses the prophet Elisha, who is attentive to the voice of God, who is willing to obey God. In conclusion, look for God's hand, even in the unexpected. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, we've read this, we've heard this before. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't allow your focus to become so fixated on God working in just a certain way to bless or a certain way to restore or a certain person to work through. Expect God to work in unexpected ways, to bless, to restore, and through unexpected people. Don't be quick to rule out certain blessings, certain ways, certain people. God did the absolutely unexpected when he became a man, when he healed on the Sabbath day, when he cleansed the temple, when he died on a cross, and when he rose again on the third day, and when he ascended to heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit. Talk about a day of the unexpected, that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and everyone in that room began to speak in tongues of men and of angels proclaiming the great works of God. God works in unexpected ways. But he also works in unexpected people. You might be that unexpected person that God wants to bless somebody through. Maybe by just letting a a need be known to somebody who can meet that need. Or taking it to somebody that you can pray for that person. You can be the unexpected blessing. You can be the unexpected means of restoration. Of just saying to somebody, I've been through that. I know how that feels. Jesus loves you. Come in. Be restored. You can be God. And if you're in here, if you love Jesus, guess what? You're called to be a blessing. You're called to bless others. That's what we do. We're filled with the love of Jesus. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We bless. We bless the deserving and the undeserving. We're just always a blessing. We go to the market. We bless the produce. We just bless the people by our presence. We bless. I I remember the manager of Sprouts, which is my favorite hang. He He was leaving, and I didn't even know he knew who I was. And all of a sudden, he comes rushing up, and he's leaving, and there's a party for him. And he says, do you know who this woman is? And, and the sales lady, yeah, the checker's like, uh, no. <laughs> and he's like, she always says hello. She always, you know, 
uh, pace and, you know, she, oh, she's honest. She's like, I'm like, thank you. And he goes, and she loves Jesus. I'm like, yes, I do. And, he, and he's like, she always has a kind word. And I'm like, I do? I was like shocked. Like, thank God. You know, I was on my best at Sprouts. Now I'm really on my best at Sprouts. <laughs> oh, to be an unexpected blessing in somebody's life. You have that potential by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ, by God. He doesn't reserve, you know, like only prophets are blessers. Only preachers can be blessers. No, women can be blessers. Servants can be blessers. We all can be blessers. And don't we want to be blessers? Don't we want people to go, oh, that woman, she's such a blessing. Oh, yes. Let's pray. Father, I think of that song, Make Me a Blessing. That's the only line I know, as you know as you know all things. But Father, we know that you work in unexpected ways and unexpected people. Let us be those unexpected people that you work through. Let us be that unexpected blessing and bring those unexpected blessings that you so desperately want to bring. Let us bring restoration, even unexpectedly. Use us for your glory. Here we are, your women, in Jesus' name.